Welcome to the Co-Mission Podcast, a place to hear talks, teaching, and conversations from across the Co-Mission Network. We're continuing our replay of Big Top Talks from Revive 2016, when our guest speaker was Don Carson, President of the Gospel Coalition. The theme of Revive 2016 was eternity, and today we hear a talk on Matthew 25, 14-30, the parable of the bags of gold. I wonder how many kinds of waiting there are. Our second child was born big, and he sort of grew from there. He was perpetually hungry. When he was uh, three and a half, perhaps, anytime you got close to a mealtime, he was mummy's little shadow, following her everywhere she went. And there was no point saying to him, Nicholas, Nicholas, 15 minutes, it's it's, it's not very long wait, just be be patient. Three and a half year olds are not really good at um, delayed satisfaction. So for him, 15 minutes was a long time, but it was possible on occasion that I was busy trying to finish an article or something, and I looked at my watch, and 15 minutes to go before lunch, I got to finish this, I got to finish this. So his 15 minutes and my 15 minutes objectively were the same 15 minutes, but his 15 minutes felt a little different from my 15 minutes. Or you're walking on the beach with the one you love and watching the sun go down and you wish it would take forever. You wait for the sun to go down and you want time to slow down. Or you can wait while the first impact of the chemo treatment subsides after a few days and you're no longer quite so nauseous. Or you've been told that you have six months to live and you wait. Or your marriage is nine weeks away and you wait. There's so many different kinds of waiting. So sooner or later, Christians who expect Jesus to come back will ask themselves, how then should we wait for Jesus? Now, Matthew 24 and 25 are divided into two unequal parts. In Matthew 24, verses 1 to 35, you have a lot of instruction about Jesus coming back. They're challenging verses. I don't have time to unpack them at all. But from 24, verse 36, to the end of 25, then we're told, in the light of Jesus coming back from the first part of 24, how do you wait? And we're told how to wait in five blocks of parable material. How do you wait for Jesus? How do you wait for the coming of the kingdom? How do you wait for the new heaven and the new earth? How do you wait? And Jesus takes a chapter and a half to give us that material. And it's worth surveying some of it before we get to our passage. I won't go through all of it, but a good chunk. Number one, wait for the Lord Jesus as those who do not wish to be taken by surprise by the Master's return. Wait for the Lord Jesus as those who do not wish to be taken by surprise at the Master's return. 24, 36 to 44. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, 
nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken, and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So the comparison Jesus makes between the world as it will be at the end and the world as it was in Noah's day is not that both were wicked, though doubtless that's true, but that in neither case was judgment expected. They're still having marriages and funerals, still having babies going to work, seeking retirement programs, trying to make sense of the economy, coping with the little pressures of life, and ignoring entirely that the end was looming over them. Jesus says, therefore, keep watch, because you don't know when that end will come. The two little vignettes that he gives in verses 40 and 41, two men in the field, almost certainly in first century agriculture, two brothers or a father and a son working together, plugging away. And one is taken, probably means taken in judgment, because the theme is judgment in the previous verses, and the other is left. Two women grinding at a handmill. There were two kinds of mills. One, one was requiring a, 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 a draw animal, a donkey or an ox, a huge stone with a hole in the middle. You pour in your grain and, and a, a draw animal, a draft animal would, would pull that stone around and grind the grain and grind the grain. But in a little handmill, there was a flat stone at the bottom and a little stone at the top with a stick sticking out. And two women usually a mother and daughter or two sisters, something like that, would squat on either side of the stone and one would pull that lever around 180 degrees and the other one pull around the other 180 degrees. And so it, it was domestic life, uh, family tightness, and one is taken in judgment and the other is not. It's that instantaneous. No warning, no flashing light saying, repent, it's five minutes counting down. And then there's one more little vignette. Understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. I've only been broken into once. I came home and I was a university student at the time. I came back to the little flat. And the, the storage area had been broken into and a, a wonderful calf leather case that my father had loaned me to move stuff back and forth to the university. Um, the thieves had broken in and all they would have had to do was to unstrap it to see if there was anything inside they wanted. But they didn't. They used some sort of sharp razor and slashed it open. It was destroyed. I assure you, if I had known that the dude was coming, um, they would have had a different outcome. And not because I'm particularly heroic, but I had a lot of strong friends. And, and, and yet, I didn't know when he was coming. I, I took no preparations. The thing was locked up. The lock was easily smashed. And, and as a result, I, I lost my dad's case. And so it will be, we're told, with the coming of Jesus. 
In other words, wait for the Lord Jesus as those who do not wish to be surprised by the Master's return. Second, wait for the Lord Jesus as stewards who must give an account of their service, faithful or otherwise. Verses 45 to 51. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. Now, each of the ensuing parables draws in the lesson from the previous one and then goes a little farther. Do you see? So the previous one was at a time when you don't expect him. Be ready. That's when he's coming. But now it goes a little farther. He does not expect him at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words... You're not only supposed to be ready for Christ to come at any time, but you have to remember that you're a steward, and you must give an account for your service. That's what the text says, whether it's faithful service or it's unfaithful service. That's what the text says. Third, wait for the Lord Jesus as those who know the Master's coming may be long delayed. Now we come to the parable of the ten virgins, as it's called, in chapter 25, 1 to 13. Now to understand this parable, to make sense of it, you have to know something about first century village marriage customs, because they're really quite different from ours today. In the first century, it was normally the groom who paid for everything. Have you noticed the wedding announcements in our newspapers goes on and on and on about the bride. She's wearing a taffeta this and her train is that and her headpiece was such and such and it goes on and on and on about who her parents are and her relatives and in-laws and outlaws. and toward the bottom it says something like the groom was also present. <laughs> the reason of course is because in most western cultures today It's the bride and the bride's family that pay for everything. But in the first century, it was the groom that paid for everything. So actually, the bride isn't actually even mentioned in this narrative because she hasn't paid for anything. It's it's focused on the groom. And in those days, the groom would go to the bride's house and there would be some ceremonies of a more private nature, immediate family, and it would go on longer than you'd expect. the idea was that eventually, after those initial ceremonies, there would be a, a kind of parade through the streets, a, 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 a time of exaltation and, and pleasure, and the other guests would then join in the parade until they got to the groom's place. Now, the groom's place could be quite modest, of course, and uh, then the wedding celebrations would only go on for a day or so, but he was supposed to be providing all the food and the drink. On the other hand, if you were a little better off, uh, they might go on for an entire week. And when, he, when they arrive at his place, it might be a walled compound. 
with a house in the middle of it and a gate and so on. That's the kind of thing that is presupposed here. There is a, there is a parade through the streets. And, and because the first ceremonies have gone on such a long time, um, the, the guests who are supposed to join in are, are discovering that it's, it's pretty late at night when the parade goes by. So some of these guests are, are described, categorized as ten virgins, five wise, five foolish. The wise ones know that these things can be slow, that the parade can be later than anticipated. So they bring not only their lamps, but they bring extra little bottles of oil to feed the bottom wicks of their lamps because they know that it can be late. And then they all go to sleep. At midnight, the cry goes up, here comes the groom. Again, no mention of the bride. She's not paying for it. And, of course, immediately they trim their wicks and get their lamps going again. And the foolish ones have no reserve of oil, and they discover that their lamps have already flickered out. The oil is finished. And when they ask for some, everything is closed up. They have to go into town, and, and the oil shop is closed. They pound on the door. Wake up, wake up, it's an emergency. And perhaps... The dude who owns the whole thing eventually comes down the stairs and opens up, sort of muttering under his breath, begrudging things, and finally they get their oil and they rush back to the house and, and then finally the door is closed on them because they look like gate crashers, party poopers, people that are trying to get into this party just to enjoy the party when they weren't really invited. They, they can't possibly be genuine people because they're arriving so late. The, the genuine guests are, are the ones who, who were waiting along the road and have joined in the parade. And now the parade is passed. The celebrations have begun. The, these, these, these people are trying to get in when they don't belong. So what's the point? The point is not that some people sleep and some people stay awake for the coming of the master. That's not the point. Because both the wise virgins and the foolish virgins sleep. The point is that the wise ones are prepared for a long delay. And the foolish ones aren't. Suppose you believed, and you were right in your belief, that Jesus is coming back in three months. Supposing you you somehow found that out. And it is the truth. You believe it passionately. Jesus is coming back in three months. What are you going to do with your three months? But suppose instead you become convinced that Jesus is coming back in 200 years. And suppose that that is a correct belief. What will you do with the next three months in that case? You see, in the first option, you're going to be throwing yourself wholeheartedly into evangelism and, and outreach and witnessing to your friends and neighbors and warning them of judgment to come and promising them the, the glow and glory of eternal life. But if you know for sure that He's not coming back for 200 years, then inevitably you're, you're thinking about how you will be a responsible citizen and care for your elderly parents and how you'll build Christian institutions that will evangelize after you're gone and dead, how you'll train people up for the kingdom and, and so on. Do, do, do you see? But the fact of the matter is, we don't know when he's coming. But we don't know when he's not. So we're supposed to be prepared, first parable, 
anytime, but we're also supposed to be aware that it could be a long time. So we must wait for the Lord Jesus as those who know the Master's coming may be long delayed. And then we come to our parable, our section that was nicely read for us. Let me tell you the point of this one, then we'll study the parable itself and then try to reflect on what this means for our Christian life. I won't go on to the last one. There's one beyond our parable, the parable of the sheep and the goats, but we'll focus on this one. Here's the point. Wait for the Lord Jesus as slaves commissioned to improve their master's assets. Wait for the Lord Jesus as slaves commissioned to improve their master's assets. Now, this has often been called in the past the parable of the talents. That's because older English versions um, call it the talents. The word talent is used. And the reason why it's called that is because there is a Greek word talenton that is used and it came across as English talents. And, 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 and so this is often called the parable of the talents. But for us today, a talent is something like playing the violin nicely or the ability to sum up numbers in your head faster than you can do it on your calculator or an ability to sing like a glorious spring warbler or whatever. You have a, a talent that you use. But the word talenton doesn't have anything to do with talents. It's a measure of weight used to measure money. It could be of silver or of gold. If it was of silver, it was a measure of weight of 6,000 pieces of silver, 6,000 denarii. So one denarius was the equivalent of about a day labor's wage. So 6,000 denarii represents about 20 years of salary, 20 years of pay for a day laborer. You can do the arithmetic yourself, but it's quite a lot of money. And that's if this is a bag of silver. Almost certainly it's a bag of gold, in which case it is worth millions and millions and millions of pounds. And this master then, he distributes this money amongst his servants. And he gives one five bags of gold, tens of millions of pounds, and to another two, to another one, each according to his ability, we're told. That is to say, the master has a good knowledge of the capacity and potential of each of his slaves. Now, our text in English translations today often calls these people servants. But in fact, the word that is used is slaves, and it turns out that that's an important word. It's hard to understand the parable unless you see that they're slaves. We'll see why in a few moments. So he distributes this money, millions and millions of pounds of gold, and then he leaves. And he goes away, we're told, for a long time. Well, here's the picking up of the previous parable's message. He might be long delayed. You see, each one picks up something from the previous ones. He might be long delayed. And we're told that the first man goes at once, without any delay, and put his money to work. Now, in the first century, there was, uh, there was no footsie. 
There was no New York Stock Exchange. Putting your money to work did not mean investing in a, a stock exchange. It, it meant buying a business and organizing the business, making it work, starting a vineyard, buying a fishing smack, uh, doing something to, to, to invest in some sort of company or business or farming enterprise or trading enterprise that would enable you to, 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 to make a profit. And if you have millions and millions and millions and millions of pounds, that's going to take a lot of work, deciding what businesses are good for you, then supervising them, managing them, hiring people, firing people, investing, being careful, recognizing the money's not yours, you have to give an account for it. He puts his money to work, he works hard at it. And after this long period of time, when the master finally returns, lo and behold, he's double the money, ten bags of gold. And the second one has likewise doubled his money, four bags of gold. So what does the master say? The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. There's almost a little element of uh, gratified pride in this. Look at this, boss. Double the money. His master replied, well done, good and faithful slave. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Well, the master says two utterly astonishing things that are entirely out of character to any first, year, first century slave situation. First of all, he says, you know, I put you in charge of piddling amounts, only tens of millions of pounds. Now I'm going to give you a real job. Isn't that remarkable? Now, in the last of these series of parables that we'll be looking at tomorrow, we'll discover some of the many, many, many images of what the new heaven and the new earth are like. But I suspect that one of the reasons we are not really eager to go there is because most of our mental images are so boring, sitting around in a puffy cloud playing a harp, that a few billion years of that looks a bit dull. But in this parable, the image of what's coming is a job that's far more significant than merely investing a lot of money, which the master dismissively reports as a few things, in favor now of a job where you're going to be in charge of many things. There's going to be work and responsibility and jobs. Oh, we'll, we'll come to that again tomorrow. That's the first surprising thing he says. The second surprising thing he says is... Um, Come and enter your master's happiness. Share joy with me. Now, that's just not the sort of thing you say to a slave in the first century. You say, go get my slippers. I want supper at such and such a time. Make sure the kids are down. Whatever. But you don't say, come and live the way I live. Come and share your master's happiness. You're part of this enterprise. Come. But that's what is told these slaves. And interestingly enough, exactly the same words are used with respect to the second slave who has doubled his income as well, even though the amount is much smaller. 
Then finally the third one comes. Master, he says, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Now, the charge leveled by this servant against his master is that the master is exploitative, grasping, using the labor of others for his own gain, indeed putting the slave in an invidious position, because if the slave is successful, none of the money is his. He's doing it for somebody else. And if the crops fail or the business goes belly up and he fails and he loses the money entrusted to him, he's held accountable. It's a lose-lose situation. So, he opts to withdraw his service. Now, if you're thinking in terms of a worker and trade unions, that's entirely reasonable. We have the right to withdraw our work if we think the terms are unjust. But that's not the social image that is being drawn for us here. This man is a slave. Now, understand well, Jesus is no more justifying slavery by this parable than he was justifying theft when he said that the coming of the Son of Man is like a thief coming in the night. You can't make the stories run on all fours. He uses the social structures of the day to make a point, not to justify the particular social structures of the day. And in that connection then, according to the social structures of the day, this man is a slave and owes his master his best work. He doesn't have the right to withdraw his service. I decide to resign as a slave. Well, under Roman law, that's a capital offense. So the problem with this chap is that although he's putting all the blame on the master, the master being exploitative and greedy, yet in terms of the social dynamics of the day, what the slave is doing is simple rebellion. He's refusing to do what he's supposed to do. And meanwhile, this master turns out to be not exploitative, but is actually determined to enrich the faithful slaves with the master's happiness and giving them more responsible jobs and elevating them. Do you see? Don't get caught up in the terrible reality of slavery and think that that is what is being justified by this parable. The point is that the slave in the social stances of the day owes his master everything, owes his master allegiance. Not to do what his master has told him is already an act of rebellion, which is why the master responds, verse 26, you wicked, lazy slave. So, you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. In other words, the master shows that the wicked slave is not only lazy, 
but is actually resentful of the master. Because the most elementary common sense would have said, even if he really was worried about losing all of this money and then being held accountable for it, the least he could have done is deposit it with a bank and let the thing earn some money, learn some interest. <clears throat> but the fact that he just hides it in the ground and says, you know, you gave me this amount, I give you this amount back, shows that he is not interested in his master's well-being or his master's profit or fulfilling his responsibilities and duties at all. What he is interested in solely is getting out from under and rebelling against his master. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags, the master says. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in other words, the lesson of this parable is wait for the Lord Jesus as those commissioned to improve their master's assets. as these slaves were commissioned to improve their master's assets. Now let's reflect on this a little bit from the point of view of what the New Testament says about these things more broadly. Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrode, where thieves dig through and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrode, where thieves do not dig through and steal. Do you recall? And then Jesus adds, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now Jesus is not there saying, guard your heart. There are biblical passages that say that. Proverbs says, guard your heart, for out of it are the wellsprings of life. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He is saying, choose your treasure because your heart will follow your treasure. So what you value the most is what you fantasize about. It's what you daydream over. It's what you think about. It's what you pursue. It can be a perverse thing, but it can be a good thing. But if it's everything to you, then it has become an idol. It's what you dream about. It's what you identify with. It's what you fantasize over. And in that connection, Jesus says, lay up treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. In other words, Jesus is saying that what we must value the most is that which is increasing the assets of heaven. I, I don't know how else to put it. it. That works out here in terms of um, men and women genuinely getting converted. More glory and praise to Christ Jesus. Good things done in Jesus' name and offered up with thanksgiving to Him so that the praises of heaven redound across the eons of time and into eternity. 
Because that's where your heart is. That's what you want the most. What you want the most then is not money, though money can be a good and useful thing. It's not power, though power rightly exercised can be a good and useful thing. It's not fame, though those with fame can use it in good ways, even as it can be used in bad ways. It's none of the things that are bound up with this life that are sensible and responsible. you, You want what is best for your children. Of course you should want what is best for your children. You are exhorted in Scripture to be good faith and faithful parents, bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, not exasperating them and so on. But it's possible so to focus on your children that that you become helicopter parents, just diving in on them all the time and and trying to control them and guarantee things that you you can't finally ultimately control, unable to give them over to God, unable to pray about them. You control everything and, and eventually they become crippled by your very efforts. Our children can become our gods. Idolatry does not consist of following bad things, although sometimes that's the way it works out. But it consists of following anything which displaces God. If what you want the most is X, so much so that God is relegated to third place, fourth place, sixth place, a nice little avocation on the side, then X has become for you an idol. And in that connection, then, the teaching of Jesus is that his followers must so delight in the treasures of heaven that that's where their imaginations run. That's what they think about. That's what they work for. Or, to use the language of this parable, they become deeply desirous of improving their master's assets, not just their own. Now, again, don't misinterpret this parable. This does not mean that the person who leads the greatest number of people to Christ is going to be at the head of the queue when they get into heaven. God measures things in all kinds of different ways. Faithfulness is more important to him than success. A Samuel Zwamer, more than a century ago, brought the gospel to large parts of the Muslim world. During the course of 40 years of ministry, he saw eight converts. Five of them were killed. But he did translate the Bible into modern Arabic. Is he going to be relegated to the back of the queue as compared with, I don't know, Billy Graham? No, 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 no. Both of them were concerned to improve their master's assets by how they spoke, by how they served, by how they worked, what they did with their time, what they did with their money, because their treasures were in heaven. Now, I know what some of you are thinking This sounds an awful lot like a kind of um, merit theology, a reward theology. You do the right stuff enough and you get the right spiritual benefits in the new heaven and the new earth. Doesn't the Bible speak of grace? Aren't we saved by God's 
grace? Yes, we are. There's so many biblical texts that insist that, that we get to heaven not because we've tried harder, but because we've been forgiven. And we're forgiven not because we've earned forgiveness, but because Christ died for sinners. He took our place. He bore our guilt and punishment. He took our shame. His righteousness is counted toward us, and our sin is reckoned to Him. He takes the sin and discharges it. He, he pays it. He absorbs it. He, he, he takes the punishment of it, and then, then, then looks at Don Carson, and he says, you're just. When both he and Don Carson know that Don Carson is not experientially just, he's now declared just because Christ has paid for it. I'm, I'm accepted. Not only so, but he, he pours out his spirit upon me to renew me and gives me a heart to, to want to head in directions that I wouldn't have chosen by myself. A, apart from conversion, apart from new birth, apart from the gift of the spirit, I, I wouldn't want any of those kinds of things. Uh, we, we know that salvation is by grace. It's by God's favor. It, it's not that I've tried harder than anybody else and that's how I'm getting in. Yet, is it not the case that there are quite a lot of passages that speak of rewards? And here, certainly, this, this remarkable formula, well done, faithful slave, enter into your master's happiness, is predicated on the faithfulness of the slaves that have doubled the master's assets. How should we think about such passages and their rewards? There are two illustrations that I have found helpful over the years to think about these things, and then some biblical passages as well, and they shed some light on this parable. One illustration is by C.S. Lewis. He pictures two men. One of the two men goes into the right red light district of town. He wants a woman. And in the red light district, he pays his money, and he has his woman. He has his reward. The other, by contrast, comes across a young woman whom he courts with honor and dignity and respect. The two families come to know and love and cherish one another, and eventually there is a wonderful happy, Christ-honoring wedding. And he has his reward. What's the difference? The difference, Lewis says, is that in the first case, the payment and the reward are so incommensurate, they're so unequal, that the transaction is obscene. Whereas in the second place, the reward is nothing more than the culmination of a relationship. The rewards that Christians experience in the new heaven and the new earth are themselves the culminations of relationships that are already grounded in God's grace in our lives and salvation itself. But we can go further. I have a dear friend, minister of a Presbyterian church in the U.S., who tells the story of uh, the time when he was raking leaves in the autumn, had piles around that he was ready to start bagging and getting rid of, when his then four-year-old son was shoved out of the house by his mother. It was a cold, blustery day, 
And the little boy was wrapped up in one of these overcoats with layers, and he sort of waddled out there. And Daddy, I want to help. So my friend Sandy, he uh, found a rake for him and said, you know, just, just sweep up some leaves into piles. Well, the little tyke uh, got into it. He started swiping away at leaves, especially the leaves that were in the piles, scattering them hither and yon, making a general mess of things. After about 10 minutes, he said, Daddy, I'm cold. And so Sandy said with some relief, um, that's fine. You've, you've helped me quite enough. Um, you, you can go in the house and maybe Mummy will have some hot chocolate for you. So the little boy waddles off to the door. And just before he goes in the door, he turns and says, Daddy, shouldn't I get paid for my help? I'd like a quarter. <laughs> 25 cents. And Sandy, being the good father that he is, said, come here, I'll give you 50 cents. Sandy says, that's about the way it is with God's rewards toward us. We go in there and throw a few leaves around, then think we should get rewarded. God doubles it because rewards, in the words of Romans, are according to grace. Yet having said all of that, the force of the parable must not be diminished. Wait for the Lord Jesus. As those who know they are committed to improving their master's assets. Now that can look so different for different people in different stages of life with different gifts. Do, do you see? For some people with a lot of money, it, it may mean being really generous with the Lord's work, sustaining ministries and so on. For others with more time, it'll mean investing in more time. For others with the requisite gifts and calling and approval of the church, it, it may mean entering into church planting with commission. For others it will mean faithfully, wisely, helpfully, sacrificially looking after parents with Alzheimer's. For others it'll mean nurturing little children in the Word of God. For others, it'll mean faithful stewardship in the context of the local church, leading house groups, quietly bearing witness, sowing the seed, praying that men and women will be converted. But over all of it will be a focus on increasing the assets of the new heaven and the new earth. And where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. That's what you'll daydream about. That's what you'll pray over. That's what you'll fantasize over. That's what you'll be working toward. So, so that even when you're discharging your earthly responsibilities here, and we all have them, even those earthly responsibilities you discharge here are bound up in your mind with service that is offered to the king. You're not just discharging responsibilities here. Even there, you are offering up such service to the king. Joyfully, gratefully, faithfully. Because you are to wait for the Lord Jesus as slaves who hunger to improve your master's assets. We have one more talk from Don Carson coming up in the next podcast. 
But to find out more about this year's Revive with guest speakers Kevin DeYoung and Efren Buckle, go to commission.org slash revive.